You are listening to U of M Radio on your Historic Dial podcast, and this is Episode 4, Pearl Harbor and Japanese Americans. Hello, Karen here at University of Minnesota Archives, and in recognition of Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day on December 7th and the 75th anniversary of the U.S. entering World War II, I chose an episode from the program The World We Want. The program ran from January of 1943 through at least the end of the war and a bit beyond. The program was sponsored by the Key Center of War Information and the University of Minnesota's Department of Speech, broadcast weekly over the radio station WLB, the previous call letters of KUOM. Our episode today is from the special bulletin number 145, Post-War Resettlement of Persons of Japanese Ancestry, which aired February of 1946, five months after World War II was declared over. The show begins with a description of the events following the bombing of Pearl Harbor by Frank Rarig, professor of speech at the University of Minnesota. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Immediately after the attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941, approximately 110,000 persons of Japanese ancestry were moved from the Pacific Coast military area and placed in protective custody. Of this number, 70,000 to 80,000 were American citizens. They were first moved to assembly centers and then to 10 war relocation centers administered by the War Relocation Authority. No attempt was made to determine who of these persons was loyal or who was disloyal. Japanese and American citizens alike were forced to sell or otherwise dispose of at great loss farm lands and city properties, including household goods. Refrigerators, for example, that cost $125 to $150 were sold for $25. The constitutional rights of Japanese-American citizens were for the time being ignored. Guests for this discussion included Lauren Stiefel of the Minneapolis College Women's Club and Reverend Daisuke Kitagawa, or Dai, director of the United Ministry of Japanese-Americans in the Twin Cities area. Rarig asked Stiefel to describe the political and personal interests behind the forced removal efforts. The military command on the West Coast felt that there was danger of a possible imminent invasion by the Japanese. They therefore decided to follow the president's executive order, <coughs> which authorized the removal of persons of doubtful loyalty from military areas, by removing Japanese-Americans to places where they could be placed under supervision. The military authorities felt that there was need for haste in this, and they felt also that in order to keep peace in the West Coast military area, they must remove this group entirely. Of course, it's well known from the history of the relationship between the Japanese-American minority and the Caucasian politicians and other groups on the West Coast, that underlying even this military activity, there were those, the activities of those who were interested in being rid of the economic competition which this group clamored for it in the press for years. Political campaigns had been carried on on the basis of uh, promises to take land rights and other types of right-of-way from Japanese-Americans. So that this was, for time. them, a kind of golden opportunity. It was but a heyday. 
Skipping ahead a bit in the episode, the three of them talk about how this reaction, this incarceration of a large population, which included legal residents and American citizens, was not similarly applied to other access power ancestries, such as the Germans and Italians living in the United States. According to Japanese American Citizens League's Power of Words Handbook, close to 70% of the persons of Japanese ancestry forcibly removed were American citizens. I wonder if we ought to discuss for a minute this matter of dual citizenship in connection with uh, this whole problem of enemy aliens during the war. Of course, uh, we were told that uh, that was one of the reasons why Japanese Americans were regarded specially dangerous. Uh, dual citizenship. Well, before December 1st, 1924, the Japanese government claimed as citizens of Japan all Japanese children born in the United States. But after that date, Japan changed her laws so that Japanese of American birth might voluntarily renounce their Japanese citizenship. It was further provided that a Japanese child of American birth must be registered in the family register within two weeks of birth in order to have citizenship in Japan. Well, there were other countries which had much more stringent laws of dual citizenship than that. I think all, all three of us can remember the heyday of Mussolini's power when he strutted before a microphone and announced that once an Italian, forever an Italian, and they were subject to the draft. It was impossible to renounce Italian citizenship. In other words, the Italian enemy aliens in this country were held as subject to military service oh, in yes. the armed forces of Italy. <clears throat> oh, yes. They didn't always submit to it. Well, we seem to have made clear this point that the Japanese were discriminated against in a very special way. They were certainly singled out. Next, we'll hear about the mixed interest and disapproval of military service provided by Japanese Americans, by their community and others as well as how secrecy and military interest for certain dangerous missions done by the Japanese Americans did not allow for recognition of their participation in the war effort. Before the evacuation, a number of boys were in the service. After Pearl Harbor, some of them were given honorable discharge. Some were kept in the service. But uh, from relocation centers, no one was drafted or no one was accepted as enlisted men excepting as uh, language students training for intelligence service at Camp Savage. Well, what is the effect uh, on the relationship between the loyal uh, Japanese Americans and those who uh, were not uh, loyal to the United States of the announcement by the United States Army of the opening of uh, opportunity for service in our armed forces after January 29, 1943, when that announcement was made? Well, uh, of course, uh, there were a large number of boys who were anxious to serve their country as soldiers. They volunteered immediately. There were a large number of uh, Japanese Americans who were more or less uh, getting resentful because of the evacuation experience. Uh, they did not like the idea very much, and especially they did not like the idea of going into a segregated uh, unit. And uh, those uh, boys uh, used to uh, intimidate the ones who are going to volunteer on, on the basis that there is no reason why they should serve the country which has denied citizenship right to them. 
Well, isn't it true also, Di, that quite a number of men that were serving throughout even this period as intelligence officers with the United States Army in the Pacific, but that their service, though the most dangerous perhaps in our army, had to be kept completely secret for military interests. Oh, yes, exactly, uh, because of the nature of their service. Until VJ Day, uh, their, their service was not uh, publicly talked about. So from the point of view of public relations, Mr. Rarig, the people who were doing the riskiest thing, because if those people were caught and made prisoners by the Japanese army, they were likely to have, to have little quarter given them. Yes, but uh, the American people didn't even know they were doing it. Yes, and see. consequently, the American people couldn't give them credit for, right. and for the service they were rendering. Yes. This discussion makes it fairly clear how tense the atmosphere truly was. Kitagawa discusses how much pressure there was in not just the incarceration or in military service, but in simply staying or leaving the United States. During the war, many Japanese Americans had been deported or coerced to give up dual citizenship by family pressures to remain loyal to Japan or simply to avoid military service. The War Relocation Authority camps had been ordered to be closed in January of 1945, but closed fairly slowly as the resettlement of Japanese Americans included just as much discrimination as the earlier forced removal. All relocation centers, except Tuli Lake, which has, as I said, uh, become segregation center, have been closed before the end of 1945, which means uh, thousands of them uh, who did not have any place to relocate on their own had to be shipped back to their original counties by the government expense, where they have become, again, dependents of a county welfare board. In other words, they've been prevented uh, from relocating in other counties because many of them were pauperized. Is that the reason for... Uh, that's right. The only reason why they remained in relocation centers until that late date was because they were unable to relocate. Right. Too many dependents and so on. Many of the uh, well-established businesses of Japanese Americans were shattered. And young Japanese Americans have to start uh, all over again uh, from the scratches, shall we say. But at the same time, I think uh, this scattering of Japanese Americans throughout the country would in the long run uh, be a good thing for them. But there is no doubt that there's a terrific penalty for your mature businessman, particularly the man who had built up a, a vegetable wholesale trade, uh, particularly the man who had rented land or who had owned it in the name of his children, and the import-export trade has been simply wiped out. Oh, yes, and uh, those people who have uh, been advanced in age, they cannot go back to uh, the farmhand, and therefore extremely difficult. It is hard to imagine the number of families that face the difficulties of reassimilating and finding work. However, Kitagawa, Stiefel, and Rerig sound like they at least had hope in the younger generation of Japanese Americans' ability to rebuild. But I should think uh, there are somewhere around 15,000 of them already back in Los Angeles, two to 3,000 of them in San Francisco and uh, in its vicinity. But um, 
There used to be pretty nearly 40,000 Japanese Americans die in Los Angeles before the war. In other words, young Japanese Americans of initiative and energy see greater opportunities in other parts of the country. Yes, exactly. Exactly. They encounter less antagonism and fewer difficulties. Perhaps. Oh, yes. And I think the <clears throat> leadership of the minority sees very clearly that along with the very dangerous precedent set for Americanism <clears throat> in this relocation pattern, that the long-time planning of a widely scattered minority has more hope for them and their children than a, a return to the old pattern. That is, they have a better chance to be assimilated into they hope. American society. That depends a good deal on you and me, I suppose. Yes, it depends on every individual. What I would like to say uh, that uh, due to uh, the hard work, earnest effort made by a number of American friends of Japanese, the general sentiment on the West Coast seems to have improved quite a bit. The show ends with a question of responsibilities moving forward. Airing just over a year after the War Relocation Authority camps were ordered to close, and almost three years after Japanese had been legally allowed to leave, although not well supported to do so, Rarig, Stiefel, and Kitagawa recognized how hard the coming years would still be and called on the support of all of their fellow Americans. Well, as a member of Japanese Americans, uh, I would say that uh, instead of looking back to the past all the time, we should look forward and make something good out of this tremendously difficult and hard experience. I think that that is probably the most wholesome outlook, but I think that unless those of us who are American Caucasians accept that, assist in the organization of the Japanese American community itself, and do everything that we can to establish fair employment practices for the Japanese American, that there will be a scar left, which is very serious. But from now on, it's going to depend on their leadership. Don't you think so, Di? The oh, leadership yes. of the group itself. Absolutely so. Working with the American uh, group at large. It's to be hoped that all our listeners will take an active interest in uh, protecting, advancing the interests of, the, of our Japanese-American citizens. That's all for this episode. Next time, we'll look ahead to the 1980s. Thanks for tuning in. The U of M Radio on your Historic Dial podcast is produced every other week for your enjoyment. Subscribe or download on iTunes or Google Play so you don't miss another moment of Historic Minnesota Radio. If you enjoy our clips and want to hear or learn more, go to www.lib.umn.edu slash uarchives and search KUOM in the collections guides. Digitization of University Archives recordings was financed in part with funds provided by the State of Minnesota from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund through the Minnesota Historical Society.